Okay, folks, uh, great to see you all here for the uh, first uh, NDISC seminar uh, of the uh, 2022 uh, social season. Um, and it couldn't get off to a better start, not only with our speaker, um, but also with his topic. Uh, Shumit Ganguly is, uh, holds the Rabindranath Tagore Chair in Indian Cultures and Civilizations uh, at Indiana University in Bloomington. Um, he's also a distinguished professor. So you're both a named chair and a distinguished professor. Um, uh, I must have known this, um, but uh, in looking at uh, Shumit's um, educational background, uh, I see he's a distinguished graduate of Berea College, which is a uh, fascinating uh, small liberal arts college in Berea, Kentucky. Well, Gene and I lived in Lexington, so the other side of the river, uh, a quite a remarkable place, which just uh, now I'm putting two and two together uh, for uh, Shumit. Uh, it makes uh, perfect sense. The Berea graduates uh, uh, are always a very distinct lot. Um, and I say distinct uh, with the non-pejorative uh, uh, emphasis. Um, Sumit's curriculum vitae uh, goes on and on. One thing I would mention, I don't know why I was getting into uh, counting how many books he's uh, written or edited, but by my count, it's like 31. I mean, I, th I think you're uh, uh, as responsible for climate change and global warming as the coal barons in, uh, in Eastern Kentucky for that. Um, but in any case, uh, I always want, uh, to have Shumit come up and join us because um, uh, he's uh, always a great interlocutor. Um, but when he proposed talking about uh, uh, Indian-Chinese uh, strategic relationships, I thought, what could be a better topic for us to uh, start off the uh, spring uh, 2022 uh, NDISC seminar? So without further ado, Shumit. Uh, thanks, Mike. One can always expect a overly generous introduction uh, from a good friend and colleague, and Mike did not surprise me on this occasion. Uh, thanks very much for that very uh, generous and kind introduction. Um, uh, since I am at a Jesuit university, I should mention that not only did I attend Berea College, which is a non-denominational Christian school, but I attended, in my judgment, the finest high school there is in India, um, which is run by the Jesuits, St. Xavier's Collegiate School. Um, uh, and uh, that is something that I have carried with me for the, you know, you know, for my entire earthly existence. Um, the, as I look back on the Jesuits, I realize how privileged I was to go to school there, something I was blissfully unaware of as a teenager. Um, but that's typical, isn't it? Um, 
I am going to talk about the significance of the Sino-Indian rivalry for the United States. So the talk is really divided into two major sections. First, I will sketch out the Sino-Indian rivalry because I don't expect that the vast majority of you spent uh, most of your waking hours thinking about the Sino-Indian rivalry. And so I'll talk about the Sino-Indian rivalry, and then I will talk about the significance um, of the rivalry for the United States. Why should the US care? Uh, but the talk itself, uh, the, those are the two broad dimensions of the talk, but then I'll break it up into five distinct components, and hopefully that will be clear. At the very outset, one cannot talk about the Sino-Indian rivalry without talking about the British colonial legacy in South Asia. Britain ruled what is much of the present day subcontinent between 1757 and 19, sorry, 1857 and 1947. And during that period of time, particularly in the late 19th century, because the British were concerned about Russian expansionary activity, particularly an interest in Afghanistan, the British pushed its colo the, their colonial borders as far north as possible, only stopped by the Himalayan mountains and followed what was called the watershed principle. So following watersheds as a natural barrier and consequently, Despite the weakness of China, at the, or because of the weakness of China at the time, it pushed its borders as far as it could. Now, of course, modern cartography had not been invented. And consequently, mapping these areas in these very remote Himalayan mountains was exceedingly difficult. And consequently, there were ambiguities when the border, about where exactly the border lay was concerned. The, and there were multiple alignments depending upon which British cartographer had worked on the border with China. Furthermore, the British had managed to acquire extraterritorial privileges in Tibet. And Tibet, between 1914, and 1950 had acquired a degree of independence. If not independence, certainly a substantial amount of autonomy, largely because China was in turmoil and um, also um, because uh, the Tibetans had asserted themselves at a time of Chinese turmoil. I, I'm mentioning all this because it becomes vitally important in terms of understanding the Sino-Indian rivalry. India in turn then inherited these colonial borders. From, um, and the, uh, of course, the Indians did not know the precise features of the border, because as I, as I said, there were multiple alignments, depending upon which British cartographer had drawn the line. Almost immediately after coming to office in 1949, the Chinese communists 
were interested in incorporating Tibet and essentially completely doing away with any notion of Tibetan independence. And in 1950, the PLA did invade Tibet and seize Tibet by force. There was some resistance, but that resistance really could not stand up to the PLA and Tibet was incorporated. Over the course of the next few years, particularly between 1950 and 1954, India, under pressure from Beijing, ceded the extraterritorial rights that it had in Tibet, including trading marts in Tibet, including the right to have a consulate in Lhasa, the capital of Tibet. Um, but despite this, because of the British colonial legacy and the fact that in the Boxer Rebellion, Indian troops had been used by the British to put down the Boxer Rebellion, the communists who, though starting out you know, on a new page, different from Republican China, nevertheless carried the memories of the Indian role in the Boxer Rebellion, even though the Indians were a colonized people and the Indian soldiers were not there of their own volition. They had been sort of dragooned into serving in China. But nevertheless, this had left a kind of a palimpsest on the, in the minds of the, of, the, of the Chinese communists about India's pernicious role under British colonialism during the Boxer Rebellion. And then subsequently, as India had reluctantly given up its privileges in Tibet between 50 and 54, there was a fear, there was a lurking fear that the Indians really had not ceded their rights in Tibet and their prerogatives in Tibet, but were insistent on ensuring that they wielded some influence in Tibet. And Tibet was extremely restive because the Tibetans were not being completely subservient to the Chinese occupation. Matters worsened when the spiritual and temporal leader of the Tibetans, the Dalai Lama, fled to India in 1958 and was given asylum. This confirmed in the minds of Beijing that there, is, there was definitely Indian perfidy at work. Why else would the Indians give sanctuary to the spiritual and temporal leader of the Tibetans. It only reinforced in their minds the, their misgivings and their doubts about the Indians and their, um, uh, their potential role in stirring up trouble in Tibet, which China under Mao really saw as China's soft underbelly. Coupled with this, the border dispute had come to the fore because the Chinese did not accept the colonially inherited borders. And a, a couple of incidents took place, border clashes took place in 1958. Um, and Prime Minister Nehru quite foolishly kept these border clashes 
uh, under wraps and did not notify India's parliament, which would prove to be a colossal error. In 1960, the Indians and the Chinese finally sat down for certain border talks to see if they could reach a resolution, but they quickly deadlocked. Um, and in the wake of this deadlock, the Indians embarked on something which was colossally foolish. It was called the forward policy. And the forward policy involved sending in lightly armed troops in what were called penny packets, small uh, uh, platoon level uh, troops into areas claimed by the Chinese, but did not back up these forces with either firepower or logistics. As an Indian general told me years later when I interviewed him, he said the forward policy had neither teeth nor tail. To put it in political science or international relations terms, this was a strategy of compellence, but a deeply flawed strategy of compellence. It was getting the Chinese to undo their claims through a display of force, but that force was essentially toothless. Nevertheless, between 1960 and 60, on October 62, the Indians pursued the forward policy. In October 1962, the battle-hardened PLA attacked Indian um, uh, encampments. The Indian military folded like a house of cards. You had soldiers fighting at altitudes of 14 to 16,000 feet without adequate thermostatic clothing, without proper boots, and with bolt action three not three rifles. And believe me, I fired one. It almost dislocated my right shoulder because it has a terrible recoil and it's a bolt action rifle. So each time you have to pull the, uh, the bolt back and it ejects the spent cartridge and then you push the bolt back in and a new cartridge goes in. This is World War I vintage uh, rifle. The Chinese were armed with automatic weapons. This was like shooting fish in a barrel. Um, uh, any number of Indian troops displayed considerable valor, but valor is not a substitute for weaponry and organization and adequate clothing. It was an abject military disaster. 14,000 square miles of India, or what India deemed to be its territory were captured by the PLA. And that remains the source of continued discord between India and China. There have been 22 rounds of border talks and their success is measured by the fact that they have exchanged maps of the middle sector where there is no dispute. Um, uh, the rivalry has worsened in recent years considerably for about three different reasons. Number one, since about 1991, India has grown quite rapidly, the last two years of the pandemic notwithstanding, but the IMF and the World Bank is saying that if the um, 
pandemic tapers off this year, India will return to between eight and 9% annual growth. That remains to be seen because the last couple of years have been disastrous. But since 1991, from which point on India for complex reasons, which I can't go into now, embraced the market, it's been one of the fastest growing economies in the world. And at one point in the mid, uh, around 2014, had actually exceeded China's economic growth. The PRC did not see India as much as a serious rival, despite the territorial dispute, until India's rapid economic growth and simultaneous ability to continue to devote greater resources to the military. Um, the second thing that has irked the PRC and has contributed to the rivalry are India's nuclear tests of 1998, where it explicitly referred to the PRC as one of the principal reasons for acquiring nuclear weapons. That has accentuated the rivalry. And third, um, the rivalry has also been deepened by India's steady willingness to work with the United States. It's increasing, it's, uh, it's um, growing strategic partnership with the United States. And the partnership with the United States in considerable part was made possible by the second Bush administration, which basically used considerable political capital to sweep away the web of non-proliferation restrictions which had been imposed on India, first for its nuclear test in 1974, and more significantly after the series of nuclear tests in May 1998. All that was swept aside in one fell swoop in 2008 when the Bush administration signed the US-India Civilian Nuclear Accord. And one of the unspoken reasons of the US-India Civilian Nuclear Accord was the Bush administration saw China as a strategic rival and consequently wanted to, uh, uh, wanted to rely on India as a potential balancer to the PRC in Asia. It saw India as a linchpin of this strategy, which subsequently was bolstered by the second Obama administration. The first Obama administration um, had sought to work with China, had sought to build a cooperative relationship with China until Obama was treated rather poorly in Beijing and afterwards by the second Obama administration, uh, there was the pivot to Asia and India was seen as the linchpin of this pivot. The fascinating thing is in a deeply polarized country like ours, India still enjoys a remarkable degree of consensus amongst the two principal political parties in this country. The India caucus, for example, in Congress uh, uh, enjoys the support of uh, 
people of every political stripe uh, in the country. Uh, there could be reasons why this consensus might fracture, and I can talk about that during the Q&A, but for the moment, that consensus does exist, and both political parties have supported the building up of India, and this was certainly carried through by the Trump administration, which provided significant real-time intelligence during a major clash that took place between the Indian Army and the PLA in uh, the spring of 2020. When the Trump administration, I have it on very good authority, provided real-time satellite-based intelligence to the Indian forces about PLA movements and the like. Um, and so the strategic partnership is now perhaps at its apogee since the end of the Cold War. Now, why does all this matter for the United States? For about four different reasons, I would argue. Number one, the U US and India, as I've already alluded to, have drawn closer over the past decade or so. And the, this has involved enhanced weapon sales, increased intelligence cooperation, and enhanced military-to-military -military exercises. This may come as a surprise to many of you, but the US and India hold more military exercises annually than any two other dyads in the world. And this has taken place really over the course of the last decade or so. India, which had hesitantly joined an entity called the Quad, the Quadrilateral, um, uh, it's not an alliance, but it is a partnership involving Australia, Japan, the United States, and India. It is primarily focused on the Indian Ocean, on keeping the sea routes open in the Indian Ocean, on the uh, the uh, the uh, uh, um, and uh, uh, since the Trump administration, the Quad has a particular formulation that it uses, and it is a free and open Indo-Pacific. And the term Indo-Pacific, by the way, is a coinage of the Trump administration, which links the Indian and Pacific oceans together and makes it seamless, with Pacific Command now referred to as the Indo-Pacific Command. And the nomenclature is not trivial. It is not merely symbolic. It reflects India's role in the Quad. The Indians have been hesitant joiners of the Quad, but the incidents of the spring of 2020 in a region called the Galwan Valley in extreme Northern India, the subject of an intense dispute with China, focused the minds of the Indians. And they've basically now thrown in their lot with the Quad and thereby making the Indo-US strategic partnership much more robust. Third, while the focus in much of American foreign policy and security policy discussions 
is on the Korean Peninsula or the dangers uh, inherent in the Korean Peninsula, as if we needed to be reminded earlier this week. Um, uh, the North Koreans set off two short-range missiles again. Of course, the hardy perennial of the Taiwan Straits. The focus on the Korean Peninsula and the Taiwan Straits has led to a lack of attention to the Himalayan dispute. This, in my judgment, is, a, is an error because China and India are not only locked in a strategic rivalry, but are the most likely contenders for dominance in Asia. Admittedly, the gap between India and China today is considerable. China's economy is now six times larger than that of India, even though in 1980, it was smaller than that of India prior to Deng Xiaoping's reforms. Chinese defense spending is about three times that of Indian defense spending. China's lead in missilery, in um, advanced military technologies is considerably greater um, than that of, of uh, is uh, there's a significant gap between India's uh, missile program and China's missile program, which is the latter of which is primarily focused on the United States, India being very much a secondary, at, at best secondary priority. Fourth, this is the most likely place in the world even more so than the Korean Peninsula or the Taiwan Straits for accidental escalation. If there is escalation, even though the US is not treaty bound to India, the US will probably feel compelled to play a role in this, to maintain the ongoing strategic partnership with India. And this probably will involve not the US press physical presence along the Himalayas, that I think is chimerical, that's fanciful. But the US Navy, which has been actively engaged in a spate of naval exercises in the Indian Ocean, will feel compelled to draw the People's Liberation Army Navy in the Indian Ocean to assist India. So for all these reasons, I would argue that we are at a juncture today where the Sino-Indian rivalry cannot be ignored by the United States. Let me stop there, Michael. Great, uh, thank you very much. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash N-D-I-S-C forward slash, or follow us on Twitter at hashtag N-D underscore I-S-C. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under SampleSwap.